be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. I'm so pleased you've joined us tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Emily Climbs, Chapter 5, Half a Loaf, and Chapter 6, Shrewsbury Beginnings. In the last chapter, Emily was deeply upset about hearing all of the Blairwater gossip surrounding herself and the Murrays. In this chapter, Aunt Elizabeth has some big news for Emily. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 5 Half a Loaf One late August evening, Emily heard Teddy's signal whistle from the Tomorrow Road and slipped out to join him. He had news that was evident from his shining eyes. Emily, he cried excitedly, I'm going to Shrewsbury after all. Mother told me this evening. She had made up her mind to let me go. Emily was glad, with a strange sorriness underneath, for which she reproached herself. How lonesome it would be at New Moon when her three old pals were gone. She had not realised until that moment how much she had counted on Teddy's companionship. He had always been there in the background of her thoughts of the coming year. She had always taken Teddy for granted. Now there would be nobody, not even Dean, for Dean was going away for the winter as usual, to Egypt or Japan 
as he might decide at the last moment. What would she do? Would all the Jimmy books in the world take the place of her flesh and blood chums? If you were only going to, said Teddy, as they walked along the Tomorrow Road, which was almost a today road now, so fast and so tall had the leafy young maples grown. There's no use wishing it. Don't speak of it. It makes me unhappy, said Emily jerkily. Well, we'll have weekends anyhow, and it's you I have to thank for going. It was what you said to mother that night in the graveyard that made her let me go. I know she's been thinking it over ever since, by things she would say every once in a while. One day last week, I heard her muttering, It's awful to be a mother. Awful to be a mother and suffer like this. Yet she called me selfish. And another time she said, Is it selfish to want to keep the only thing you have left in the world? But she was lovely tonight when she told me I could go. I know folks say mother isn't quite right in her mind, and sometimes she is a little strange, but it's only when other people are around. You've no idea, Emily, how nice and dear she is when we're alone. I hate to leave her, but I must get some education. I'm very glad if what you say has made her change her mind. But she will never forgive me for it. She has hated me ever since. You know she has. You know how she looks at me whenever I'm at the Tansy Patch. Oh, she's very polite to me. But her eyes, Teddy. I know said Teddy, uncomfortably. But don't be hard on Mother. Emily, I'm sure she wasn't always like that, though she has been ever since I can remember. I don't know anything of her before that. She never tells me anything. I don't know a thing about my father. She won't talk about him. I don't even know how she got that scar on her face. I don't think there's anything the matter with your mother's mind, really, said Emily, slowly. But I think there's something troubling it, always troubling it, something she can't forget or throw off. Teddy. I'm sure your mother is haunted. Of course, I don't mean by a ghost or anything silly like that, but by some terrible thought. 
She isn't happy, I know, said Teddy. And of course, we're poor. Mother said tonight she could only send me to Shrewsbury for three years. That was all she could afford. But that will give me a start. I'll get on somehow after that. I know I can. I'll make it up to her yet. You will be a great artist someday, said Emily, dreamily. They had come to the end of the Tomorrow Road. Before them was the pond pasture, whitened over with a drift of daisies. Farmers hate the daisies as a pestiferous weed, but a field white with them on a summer twilight is a vision from the land of lost delight. Beneath them, Blair water shone like a great golden lily. Up on the eastern hill, the little disappointed house crouched amid its shadows, dreaming, perhaps, of the false bride that never came to it. There was no light at the Tansy Patch. Was lonely Mrs. Kent crying there in the darkness, with only her secret, tormenting, heart hunger for compassion? Emily was looking at the sunset sky, her eyes rapt, her face pale and seeking. She felt no longer blue or depressed. Somehow, she never could feel that way in Teddy's company. In all the world, there was no music like his voice. All good things seemed suddenly possible with him. She could not go to Shrewsbury, but she could work and study at New Moon. Oh, how she would work and study. Another year with Mr. Carpenter would do a great deal for her. As much as Shrewsbury, perhaps. She, too, had her alpine path to climb. She would climb it, no matter what the obstacles in the way. No matter whether there was anyone to help her or not. When I am, I'll paint you just as you're looking now, said Teddy. And I'll call it Joan of Arc, with a face all spirit, listening to her voices. In spite of her voices, Emily went to bed that night, feeling rather downhearted, and woke in the morning with an unaccountable conviction that some good news was coming to her that day. A conviction that did not lessen as the hours passed by in the commonplace fashion of Saturday hours at New Moon. Busy hours in which the house was made immaculate for Sunday and the pantry replenished 
It was a cool, damp day when the frogs were coming up from the shore on the east wind, and New Moon and its old garden were veiled in mist. At twilight, a thin, grey rain began to fall, and still the good news had not come. Emily had just finished scouring the brass candlesticks and composing a poem called Rain Song, simultaneously when Aunt Laura told her that Aunt Elizabeth wanted to see her in the parlour. Emily's recollections of the parlour interviews with Aunt Elizabeth were not especially pleasant. She could not recall any recent deed, done or left undone, which would justify this summons. Yet she walked into the parlour quakily. Whatever Aunt Elizabeth was going to say to her, it must have some special significance, or it would not be said in the parlour. This was just one of Aunt Elizabeth's little ways. Daffy, her big cat, slipped in beside her like a noiseless grey shadow. She hoped Aunt Elizabeth would not shoo him out. His presence was a certain comfort. A cat is a good backer when he is on your side. Aunt Elizabeth was knitting. She looked solemn, but not offended or angry. She ignored Daff, but thought that Emily seemed very tall in the old, stately, twillet room. How quickly children grew up. It seemed but the other day since fair, pretty Juliet. Elizabeth Murray shut her thoughts off with a click. Sit down, Emily, she said. I want to have a talk with you. Emily sat down. So did Daffy, wreathing his tail comfortably about his paws. Emily suddenly felt that her hands were clammy and her mouth was dry. She wished that she was knitting too. It was nasty to sit there, unoccupied, and wonder what was coming. What did come was the one thing she had never thought of. Aunt Elizabeth, after knitting a deliberate round on her stocking, said directly, Emily, would you like to go to Shrewsbury next week? Go to Shrewsbury? Had she heard all right? Oh, Aunt Elizabeth, she said. I have been talking the matter over with your uncles and aunts, said Aunt Elizabeth. They agree with me 
that you should have some further education. It will be a considerable expense, of course. No, don't interrupt. I don't like interruptions. But Ruth will board you for half price, as her contribution to your upbringing. Emily, I will not be interrupted. Your Uncle Oliver will pay the other half. Your Uncle Wallace will provide your books, and I will see to your clothes. You will, of course, help your Aunt Ruth about the house in every way possible, as some return for her kindness. You may go to Shrewsbury for three years on a certain condition. What was the condition? Emily, who wanted to dance and sing and laugh through the parlour as no Murray, not even her mother, had ever ventured to dance and laugh before, constrained herself to sit rigidly on her ottoman and ask herself that question. Behind her suspense, she felt that that moment was quite dramatic. Three years at Shrewsbury, Aunt Elizabeth went on, will do as much for you as three at Queen's. Except, of course, that you don't get a teacher's license. Which doesn't matter in your case, as you're not under the necessity of working for your living. But as I have said, there is a condition. Why didn't Aunt Elizabeth name the condition? Emily felt that the suspense was unendurable. Could it be possible that Aunt Elizabeth was a little afraid to name it? It was not like her to talk for time. Was it so very terrible? You must promise, said Aunt Elizabeth sternly, that for the three years you are at Shrewsbury, you will give up entirely this writing nonsense of yours. Entirely. Except in so far as school compositions may be required. Emily sat very still and cold. No Shrewsbury on the one hand. On the other, no more poems. No more stories and studies. No more delightful Jimmy books of miscellany. She did not take more than one instant to make up her mind. I can't promise that, Aunt Elizabeth, she said resolutely. Aunt Elizabeth dropped her knitting in amazement. She had not expected this. She had thought Emily was so set in going to Shrewsbury that she would do anything that might be asked of her in order to go especially such a trifling thing as this. 
which, so Aunt Elizabeth thought, involved only a surrender of stubbornness. Do you mean to say you won't give up your foolish scribbling for the sake of the education you've always pretended to want so much? She demanded. Not that I won't. It's just that I can't, said Emily despairingly. She knew Aunt Elizabeth could not understand. Aunt Elizabeth never had understood this. I can't help writing, Aunt Elizabeth. It's in my blood. There's no use in asking me. I do want an education. It isn't pretending. But I can't give up my writing to get it. I couldn't keep such a promise. So what use would it be to make it? Then you can stay home, said Aunt Elizabeth angrily. Emily expected to see her get up and walk out of the room. Instead, Aunt Elizabeth picked up her stocking and wrathfully resumed her knitting. To tell the truth, Aunt Elizabeth was absurdly taken aback. She really wanted to send Emily to Shrewsbury. Tradition required so much of her, and all the clan were of the opinion she should be sent. This condition had been her own idea. She thought it a good chance to break Emily of a silly, unmurray-like habit of wasting time and paper and she had never doubted that her plan would succeed, for she knew how much Emily wanted to go. And now this senseless, unreasoning, ungrateful obstinacy. The star coming out, thought Emily rancorously, forgetful of the Shipley inheritance. What was to be done? She knew too well from past experience that there would be no moving Emily once she had taken up a position. And she knew that Wallace and Oliver and Ruth, though they thought Emily's craze for writing as silly and untraditional as they did, would not back her, Elizabeth, up in her demand. Elizabeth Murray foresaw a complete right-about face before her, and Elizabeth Murray did not like the prospect. She would have shaken, with a right good will, the slim, pale thing sitting before her on the ottoman. The creature was so slight, and young, and indomitable. For over three years, Elizabeth Murray had tried to cure Emily of this foolishness of writing, and for over three years, she, who had never failed in anything before, had failed in this. One couldn't starve her in her submission, 
and nothing short of it would seem to be efficacious. Elizabeth knitted furiously in her vexation, and Emily sat motionless, struggling with her bitter disappointment and sense of injustice. She was determined she would not cry before Aunt Elizabeth, but it was hard to keep the tears back. She wished Daff wouldn't purr with such resounding satisfaction, as if everything were perfectly delicious from a grey cat's point of view. She wished Aunt Elizabeth would tell her to go, but Aunt Elizabeth only knitted furiously and said nothing. It all seemed rather nightmarish. The wind was rising, and the rain began to drive against the pane, and the dead and gone Murrays looked down accusingly from their dark frames. They had no sympathy with flashes and jimmy books and the alpine path. With the pursuit of unwon, alluring divinities, Yet Emily couldn't help thinking, under all her disappointment, what an excellent setting it would make for some tragic scene in a novel. The door opened, and Cousin Jimmy slipped in. Cousin Jimmy knew what was in the wind, and had been coolly and deliberately listening outside the door. He knew Emily would never promise such a thing. He had told Elizabeth so at the family council ten days before. He was only simple Jimmy Murray, but he understood what sensible Elizabeth Murray could not understand. What is wrong? he asked, looking from the other side. Nothing is wrong, said Aunt Elizabeth haughtily. I have offered Emily an education, and she has refused it. She is free to do so, of course. No one can be free who has a thousand ancestors, said Cousin Jimmy, in the eerie tone in which he generally said such things. It always made Elizabeth shiver. She could never forget that his eeriness was her fault. Emily can't promise what you want, can you, Emily? No. In spite of herself, a couple of big tears rolled down Emily's cheeks. If you could, said Cousin Jimmy. You would promise it for me, wouldn't you? Emily nodded. You've asked too much, Elizabeth, said Cousin Jimmy to the angry lady of the knitting needles. You've asked her to give up all her writing. Now, if you just asked her to give up some, Emily, 
What if she just asked you to give up some? You might be able to do that, mightn't you? What sum? asked Emily cautiously. Well, anything that wasn't true, for instance. Cousin Jimmy sidled over to Emily and put a beseeching hand on her shoulder. Elizabeth did not stop knitting, but the needles went more slowly. Stories, for instance, Emily. She doesn't like your writing stories especially. She thinks they're lies. She doesn't mind other things so much. Don't you think, Emily, you could give up writing stories for three years? An education is a great thing. Your grandmother Archbold would have lived on herring tails to get an education. Many a time I've heard her say it. Come, Emily. Emily thought rapidly. She loved writing stories. It would be a hard thing to give them up. But if she could still write airborne fancies in verse, and weird little Jimmy book sketches of character, and accounts of everyday events, witty, satirical, tragic, as the humour took her, she might be able to get along. Try her, try her, whispered Cousin Jimmy. Propitiate her a little. You do owe her a great deal, Emily. Meet her halfway. Aunt Elizabeth, said Emily, tremorously. If you will send me to Shrewsbury, I promise you that for three years I won't write anything that isn't true. Will that do? Because it's all I can promise. Emily knitted two rounds before deigning to reply. Cousin Jimmy and Emily thought she was not going to reply at all. Suddenly, she folded up her knitting and rose. Very well, I will let it go at that. It is, of course, your stories I object to most. As of the rest, I fancy Ruth will see to it that you have not much time to waste on it. Aunt Elizabeth swept out, much relieved in her secret heart that she had not been utterly rooted, but had been able to retreat from a perplexing position with some of the honours of war. Cousin Jimmy patted Emily's black head. That's good, Emily. Mustn't be too stubborn, you know. And three years isn't a lifetime, pussy. No, but it seems like one at fourteen. Emily cried herself to sleep when she went to bed, and woke again at three by the clock of that windy, dark grey night 
on the old north shore. Rose lighted a candle, sat down at her table, and described the whole scene in her jimmy book, being exceedingly careful to write therein no words that were not strictly true. Chapter 6 Shrewsbury Beginnings Teddy and Dilsa and Perry whooped for joy when Emily told them she was going to Shrewsbury. Emily, thinking it over, was reasonably happy. The great thing was that she was going to high school. She did not like the idea of boarding with Aunt Ruth. This was unexpected. She had supposed that Aunt Ruth would never be willing to have her about, and that, if Aunt Elizabeth did decide to send her to Shrewsbury, she would board elsewhere, probably with Ilsa. Certainly, she would have greatly preferred this. She knew quite well that life would not be very easy under Aunt Ruth's roof. And then she must write no more stories. To feel within her the creative urge and be forbidden to express it. To tingle with delight in the conception of humorous or dramatic characters and be forbidden to bring them into existence. To be suddenly seized with the idea of a capital plot and realise immediately afterwards that you couldn't develop it. All this was a torture which no one who has not been born with the fatal itch of writing can realise. The Aunt Elizabeths of the world can never understand it. To them, it is merely foolishness. Those last two weeks of August were busy ones at New Moon. Elizabeth and Laura held long conferences over Emily's clothes. She must have an outfit that would cast no discredit on the Murrays. But common sense, and not fashion, was to give the casting vote. Emily herself had no say in the matter. Laura and Elizabeth argued from noon till dewy eve, one day, as to whether Emily might have a taffeta silk blouse. Elsa had three, and decided against it, much to Emily's disappointment. But Laura had her way in regard to what she dared not call an evening dress, since the name would have doomed it in Elizabeth's opinion. It was a pretty crepe thing, of a pinkish grey, the shade, I think, which was then called Ashes of Roses, and was made collarless, a great concession on Elizabeth's part with the big puffed sleeves that looked very absurd today, but which, like every other fashion, 
were pretty and piquant when worn by the youth and beauty of their time. It was the prettiest dress Emily had ever had, and the longest, which meant much in those days, when you could not be grown up until you had put on a long dress. It came to her pretty ankles. She put it on one evening, when Laura and Elizabeth were away, because she wanted Dean to see her in it. He had come up to spend the evening with her. He was off the next day, having decided on Egypt, and they walked in the garden. Emily felt quite old and sophisticated because she had to lift her shimmering skirt clear of the ribbon grasses. She had a little greyish-pink scarf wound around her head and looked more like a star than ever, Dean thought. The cats were in attendance, Duffy, sleek and striped, Saucy Sal, who still reigned supreme in the new moon barns. Cats might come and cats might go, but Saucy Sal went on forever. They frisked over the grass plots and pounced on each other from flowery jungles and rolled insinuatingly around Emily's feet. Dean was going to Egypt, but he knew that nowhere, even amid the strange charm of forgotten empires, would he see anything he liked better than the pretty picture Emily and her little cats made in the prim, stately-scented old garden of New Moon. They did not talk as much as usual, and the silences did strange things to both of them. Dean had one or two mad impulses to throw up the trip to Egypt and stay home for the winter. Go to Shrewsbury, perhaps. He shrugged his shoulders and laughed at himself. This child did not need his looking after. The ladies of New Moon were competent guardians. She was only a child yet, in spite of her slim height and her unfathomable eyes. She would be a woman soon, but not for him. Not for old Jarback Priest of her father's generation. For the hundredth time, Dean told himself that he was not going to be a fool. He must be content with what fate had given him. The friendship and affection of this exquisite, starry creature. In the years to come, her love would be a wonderful thing. For some other man. No doubt, Dean thought cynically, she would waste it on some good-looking young mannequin who wasn't half worthy of it. Emily was thinking how dreadfully she was going to miss Dean, more than she had ever missed him before. They had been such good pals that summer. 
She had never had a talk with him, even if it were only for a few minutes, without feeling that life was richer. His wise, witty, humorous, satiric sayings were educative. They stimulated, stung, inspired her, and his occasional compliments gave her self-confidence. He had a certain strange fascination for her that no one else in the world possessed. She felt it, though she could not analyse it. Teddy, now, she knew perfectly well why she liked Teddy. It was just because of his teddiness. And Perry, Perry was a jolly, sunburned, outspoken, boastful rogue you couldn't help liking. But Dean was different. Was his charm the allure of the unknown, of experience, of subtle knowledge, of a mind grown wise on bitterness, of things Dean knew that she could never know? Emily couldn't tell. She only knew that everybody tasted a little flat after Dean. Even Teddy, though she liked him best. Oh yes, Emily never had any doubt at all that she liked Teddy best. And yet Dean seemed to satisfy some part of her subtle and intricate nature that always went hungry without him. Thank you for all you've taught me, Dean, she said as they stood by the sundial. Do you think you've taught me nothing, Star? How could I? I'm so young, so ignorant. You've taught me how to laugh without bitterness. I hope you'll never realise what a boon that is. Don't let them spoil you at Shrewsbury, Star. You're so pleased over going, but I don't want you to throw cold water. But you'd be just as well off, better, here at New Moon. Dean, I want some education. Education. Education isn't being spoon-fed with algebra and second-rate Latin. Old Carpenter could teach you more and better than the college cubs, male and female, in Shrewsbury High School. I can't go to school any more here, protested Emily. I'd be all alone. All the pupils of my age are going to Queen's or Shrewsbury or staying at home. I don't understand you, Dean. I thought you'd be so glad they're letting me go to Shrewsbury. I am glad, since it pleases you. Only, the law I wished for you isn't learned in high schools or measured by terminal exams. Whatever of worth you get at school, you'll dig out for yourself 
don't let them make anything of you by yourself. That's all. I don't think they will. No, they won't, said Emily decidedly. I'm like Mr. Kipling's cat. I walk by my wild lone and wave my wild tail where so it pleases me. That's why the Murrays look ask and tap me. They think I should only run with the pack. Oh, Dean, you'll write me often, won't you? Nobody understands like you. And you've got to be such a habit with me. I can't do without you. Emily said and meant it lightly enough. But Dean's thin face flushed darkly. They did not say goodbye. That was an old compact of theirs. Dean waved his hand at her. May every day be kind to you, he said. Emily gave him only her slow, mysterious smile. He was gone. The garden seemed very lonely in the faintest blue twilight, with the ghostly blossoms of the white flocks here and there. She was glad when she heard Teddy's whistle in Lofty John's bush. On her last evening at home, she went to see Mr. Carpenter and get his opinion regarding some manuscripts she had left with him for criticism. Among them were her latest stories, written before Aunt Elizabeth's ultimatum. Criticism was something Mr. Carpenter could give with a right good will, and he never minced matters. But he was just, and Emily had confidence in his verdict, even when he said things that raised temporary blisters on her soul. This love story is no good, he said bluntly. I know that it isn't what I wanted to make it, sighed Emily. No story ever is, said Mr. Carpenter. You'll never write anything that really satisfies you, though it may satisfy other people. As for love stories, you can't write them because you can't feel them. Don't try to write anything you can't feel. It will be a failure. Echoes nothing worth. This other yarn now, about this old woman. It's not bad. The dialogue is clever. The climax simple and effective. And thank the Lord you've got a sense of humour. That's mainly why you're not good at love stories, I believe. Nobody with any real sense of humour can write a love story. Emily didn't see why this should be. She liked writing love stories, 
and terribly sentimental. Tragical stories they were. Shakespeare could, she said defiantly. You're hardly in the Shakespeare class, said Mr. Carpenter dryly. Emily blushed scorchingly. I know I'm not, but you said nobody. And I maintain it. Shakespeare is the exception that proves the rule, though his sense of humour was certainly in abeyance when he wrote Romeo and Juliet. However, let's come back to see Emily of New Moon. This story, well, a young person might read it without contamination. Emily knew by the inflection of Mr. Carpenter's voice that he was not praising the story. She kept silent, and Mr. Carpenter went on, flicking her precious manuscripts aside irreverently. This one sounds like a weak imitation of Kipling. Been reading him lately. Yes. I thought so. Don't try to imitate Kipling. If you must imitate, imitate Laura Jean Libby. Nothing good about this but its title. A priggish little yarn. And Hidden Riches is not a story. It's a machine. It creaks. It never made me forget for one instant that it was a story. Hence, it isn't a story. I was trying to write something very true to life, protested Emily. Ah, that's why. We all see life through an illusion. Even the most delusioned of us. That's why things aren't convincing if they're too true to life. Let me see. The Maiden Family. Another attempt at realism. But it's only photography, not portraiture. What a lot of disagreeable things you've said, sighed Emily. It might be a nice world if nobody ever said a disagreeable thing, but it would be a dangerous one, retorted Mr. Carpenter. You told me you wanted criticism, not taffy. However, here's a big bit of taffy for you. I kept it for last. Something different is comparatively good, and if I wasn't afraid of ruining you, I'd say it was absolutely good. Ten years from now, you can rewrite it and make something of it. Yes, ten years. Don't screw up your face, Jade. You have talent, and you've got a wonderful feeling for words. 
you get the inevitable one every time. That's a priceless thing. But you have some vile faults too. Those cursed italics. Forswear them, Jade. Forswear them. And your imagination needs a curb when you get away from realism. It's to have one now, said Emily, gloomily. She told him of her compact with Aunt Elizabeth. Mr. Carpenter nodded. Excellent. Excellent, echoed Emily blankly. Yes, it's just what you need. It will teach you restraint and economy. Stick to facts for three years and see what you can make of them. Leave the realm of imagination severely alone and confine yourself to ordinary life. There isn't any such thing as ordinary life, said Emily. Mr. Carpenter looked at her for a moment. You're right, there isn't, he said slowly. But one wonders a little how you know it. Well, go on, walk in your chosen path, and thank whatever gods there be that you're free to walk it. Cousin Jimmy says nobody can be free who has a thousand ancestors. And yet, people call that man simple, muttered Mr. Carpenter. However, your ancestors don't seem to have wished any special curse on you. They've simply laid it on you to aim for the heights. And they'll give you no peace if you don't. Call it ambition. Aspiration. Any name you like. Under its sting, or lure, one has to go on climbing until one fails. Or... Succeeds, said Emily, flinging back her dark head. Amen, said Mr. Carpenter. Emily wrote a poem that night. Farewell to New Moon. And shed tears over it. She felt every line of it. It was all very well to be going to school. But to leave her dear New Moon... Everything at New Moon was linked with her life and thoughts, was a part of her. It's not only that I love my room and trees and hills. They love me, she thought. Her little black trunk was packed. Aunt Elizabeth had seen that everything necessary was in it and Aunt Laura and Cousin Jimmy had seen that one or two unnecessary things were in it. 
Aunt Laura had told Emily that she would find a pair of black lace stockings inside. Even Laura did not dare to go so far as silk stockings. And Cousin Jimmy had given her three Jimmy books and an envelope with five dollar bills in it. To get anything you want with pussy, I'd have made it ten, but five was all Elizabeth would advance me on next month's wages. I think she suspects. Can I spend a dollar of it for American stamps if I can find my way to get them? Whispered Emily, anxiously. Anything you like, repeated Cousin Jimmy loyally. Though even to him, it did not appear an unaccountable thing that anyone should want to buy American stamps. But if dear little Emily wanted American stamps, American stamps she should have. The next day seemed rather dreamlike to Emily. The bird she heard singing rapturously in Lofty John's bush when she woke at dawn. The drive to Shrewsbury in the early, crisp September morning. Aunt Ruth's cool welcome. The hours at a strange school. The organisation of the prep classes. Home to supper. Surely it must all have taken more than a day. Aunt Ruth's house was at the end of a residential side street, almost out in the country. Emily thought it a very ugly house, covered as it was with gingerbread work of various kinds. But a house with white wooden lace on its roof and its bay windows was the last word of elegance in Shrewsbury. There was no garden, nothing but a bare, prim little lawn. But one thing rejoiced Emily's eyes. Behind the house was a big plantation of tall, slender fir trees. The tallest, straightest, slenderest firs she had ever seen stretching back into long, green, gossamered vistas. Aunt Elizabeth had spent the day in Shrewsbury and went home after supper. She shook hands with Emily on the doorstep and told her to be a good girl and do exactly as her Aunt Ruth bade her. She did not kiss Emily, but her tone was very gentle for Aunt Elizabeth. Emily choked up and stood tearfully on the doorstep to watch Aunt Elizabeth out of sight. Aunt Elizabeth going back to dear New Moon. Come in, said Aunt Ruth, 
and please don't slam the door. Now, Emily never slammed doors. We will wash the supper dishes, said Aunt Ruth. You will always do that after this. I will show you where everything is put. I suppose Elizabeth told you I would expect you to do a few chores for your board. Yes, said Emily briefly. She did not mind doing chores, any number of them, but it was Aunt Ruth's tone. Of course your being here will mean a great deal of extra expense for me, continued Aunt Ruth. But it is only fair that we shall all contribute something to your bringing up. I think, and I have always thought, that it would have been much better to send you to Queen's to get a teacher's license. I wanted that too, said Emily. Hmm. Aunt Ruth pursed her mouth. So you tell me. In that case, I don't see why Elizabeth didn't send you to Queen's. She has pampered you enough in other ways. I'm sure I would expect her to give in about this too, if she thought you really wanted it. You will sleep in the kitchen chamber. It is warmer in winter than the other rooms. There is no gas in it but I could not afford to let you have gas to study by any case. You must use candles. You can burn two at a time. I shall expect you to keep your room neat and tidy and to be here at my exact hours for meals. I am very particular about that. And there is another thing you might as well understand at once. You must not bring your friends here. I do not propose to entertain them. Not Ilsa, or Perry, or Teddy. Well, Ilsa is a Burnley, and a distant connection. She might come in once in a while. I can't have her running in at all times. From all I hear of her, she isn't a very suitable companion for you. As for the boys, certainly not. I know nothing of Teddy Kent, and you ought to be too proud as to associate with Perry Miller. I'm too proud not to associate with them retorted Emily. Don't be pert with me, Emily. You might as well understand right away that you are not going to have things all your own way here as you had at New Moon. You have been badly spoiled. But I will not have hired boys calling on my niece. I don't know where you get your low tastes from. I'm sure 
Even your father seemed like a gentleman. Go upstairs and unpack your trunk. Then do your lessons. We go to bed at nine o'clock. Emily felt very indignant. Even Aunt Elizabeth had never dreamed of forbidding Teddy to come to New Moon. She shut herself in her room and unpacked drearily. The room was such an ugly one. She hated it at sight. The door wouldn't shut tight. The slanting ceiling was rain-stained and came down so close to the bed that she could touch it with her hand. On the bare floor was a large, hooked mat which made Emily's eyes ache. It was not in Murray taste, nor in Ruth Dutton's taste either, to be just. A country cousin of the deceased Mr. Dutton had given it to her. The centre of a crude, glaring scarlet was surrounded by scrolls of militant orange and violent green. In the corners were bunches of purple ferns and blue roses. The woodwork was painted a hideous chocolate brown, and the walls were covered with paper of still more hideous design. The pictures were in keeping, especially a chromo of Queen Alexandria, gorgeously bedizened with jewels, hung at such an angle that it seemed the royal lady must certainly fall over on her face. Not even a chromo could make Queen Alexandria ugly or vulgar, but it came piteously near it. On a narrow chocolate shelf sat a vase filled with paper flowers that had been paper flowers for twenty years. One couldn't believe that anything could be as ugly and depressing as they were. This room is unfriendly. It doesn't want me. I can never feel at home here, said Emily. She was horribly homesick. She wanted new moon candlelights shining out on the birch trees, the scent of hop vines in the dew, her purring pussycats, her own dear room full of dreams, the silences and shadows of the old garden, the grand anthems of wind and billow in the gulf, that sonorous old music she missed so much in this inland silence. She missed even the little graveyard where slept the new moon dead. I'm not going to cry, 
Emily clenched her hands. Aunt Ruth will laugh at me. There's nothing in this room I can ever love. Is there anything out of it? She pushed the window. It looked south into the fir grove, and its balsam blew into her like a caress. To the left, there was an opening in the trees, like a green, arched window, and one saw an enchanting little moonlit landscape through it, and it would let in the splendour of sunset. To the right was a view of the hillside, along which West Shrewsbury straggled. The hill was dotted with lights in the autumn dusk, and had a fairy-like loveliness. Somewhere nearby, there was a drowsy twittering, as of little, sleepy birds swinging on a shadowy bough. Oh, this is beautiful, breathed Emily, bending out to drink in the balsam-scented air. Father told me once that one could find something beautiful to love everywhere. I'll love this. Aunt Ruth poked her head in at the door unannounced. Emily, why did you leave that anti-macassar crooked on the sofa in the dining room? I don't know said Emily, confusedly. She hadn't even known she had disarranged the antimacassar. Why did Aunt Ruth ask such a question, as if she suspected her of some dark, deep, sinister design? Go down and put it straight. As Emily turned obediently, Aunt Ruth exclaimed. Emily Starr, put that window down at once. Are you crazy? The room is so close, pleaded Emily. You can air it out in the daytime, but never have that window open after sundown. I am responsible for your health now. You must know that consumptives have to avoid night air and draughts. I'm not a consumptive, cried Emily rebelliously. Contradict, of course. And if I were, fresh air any time is the best thing for me. Dr. Burnley said so. I hate being smothered. Young people think old people to be fools, and old people know young people to be fools. Aunt Ruth felt that the proverb left nothing to be said. Go and straighten that antimacassar, Emily. Emily swallowed something and went. 
the offending anti-Macassar was mathematically corrected. Emily stood for a moment and looked about her. Aunt Ruth's dining room was much more splendid and up-to-date than the sitting room at New Moon, where they had company meals. Hardwood floor, Wilton rug, early English oak furniture. It was not half as friendly as the old New Moon room, Emily thought. She was more homesick than ever. She did not believe she was going to like anything in Shrewsbury, living with Aunt Ruth, or going to school. The teachers all seemed flat and insipid after pungent Mr. Carpenter, and there was a girl in the junior class she had hated at sight and she had thought it would be all so delightful, living in pretty Shrewsbury and going to high school. Well, nothing ever is exactly what you expect it to be, Emily told herself in temporary pessimism as she went back to her room. Hadn't Dean told her once that he had dreamed all his life of rowing in a gondola through the canals of Venice on a moonlit night. And when he did, he was almost eaten alive by mosquitoes. Emily set her teeth as she crept into bed. I shall just have to fix my thoughts on the moonlight and romance and ignore the mosquitoes, she thought. Only, Aunt Ruth does sting so.